This is an ABC podcast. Let's play a little sound association game. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Okay, this is the sound of the environment. Well, unless you live in this kind of environment, which is probably most of us, to be honest. And this... This is the very familiar sound of climate change. Particularly in Australia, a sound that still haunts many communities. And then there's this. Not familiar, perhaps? Well, this is yet another sound associated with our increasingly fragile environment. The sound of litigation. And according to our guest today, it's a sound we're going to be hearing a lot more of in coming years. I think the landscape of court cases around climate change is really changing rapidly. I mean, you can even see in the last two or three years, we've doubled the number of cases that are being brought forward. And it's not just in the developed world, it's in many, many countries. I mean, Colombia, India, Pakistan. So the the very nature of what we're seeing is very diverse, but it has at its core the idea that climate change is really pushing governments and corporations to implement their climate commitments. Professor Jacqueline McGlade from University College London and the Strathmore University Business School in Kenya. So there's kind of different categories of these cases. Some are are putting forward the idea of human rights. Others are saying the government promised to do something and you're not doing it. There are other cases that are talking about keeping fossil fuels in the ground. In other words, don't even allow them to come out. There's a liability issue around corporations. So we see a huge variety of cases coming forward and being successful. The other aspect which I think is fascinating is that it's across generations. And this actually brings a really serious issue. So often you'll see a lawyer representing a particular group who have that articulation. They can go to court and they know how to say it. But we've recently seen a lot of young people putting themselves forward as the next generation. And it's had mixed results. We had some court cases saying, actually, we can't legislate or we can't come in your favour because we're not convinced that it will actually determine the fate of people in the future. So there is a question in, in legal terms, it's called justiciability. It's a weird word, but it really talks about the right to be in the court case and represent the rights of many. You mentioned human rights as one of the categories for litigation. What are the arguments there? How do you use a human rights argument when you're looking at issues around climate change? Well, I'm sure by now everybody knows that climate is going to impact everyone. And to a different degree, it will affect the health of people, their access to food and clean water. And so it's that combination of saying that climate change will impact our fundamental human rights to life, to water, to food and so on. And that's how it is connected. Which types of courts are being asked to hear this type of litigation? Are we talking about a variety of jurisdictions? Absolutely. I think in the US, which has been some of the showcase trials, so to speak, we've seen a number of cases being put forward. I find the ones very interesting, the ones, for example, from Colombia, where they actually went to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the court concluded in the favour, so to speak, of the state by saying that the states had 
an obligation to take care of their peoples. And it was a matter of national survival is what that court said. So that goes for a whole raft of countries that come under their jurisdiction. Canada has had cases brought by indigenous groups where to keep their constitutional commitment to peace, order and good government, they were challenged by indigenous peoples to pass uh, laws that mitigated greenhouse gas emissions. And they said that if that didn't happen, there would be tremendous psychological trauma brought because of extreme events and so on. So that was important. Another one included, for example, from Brazil, where the government was failing to properly administer the Amazon Fund, the mechanism that was set up to combat deforestation. And the Supreme Court accepted that lawsuit last year and directed the government to actually provide information on why it wasn't managing the fund properly. So a whole change and a whole different way of thinking from the Philippines, South Africa, Peru, Pakistan, many, many different kinds of cases being heard at Supreme Court level, at local levels, and increasingly at regional and even at the global level. Jacqueline McGlade. At the University of Melbourne, environmental law expert Professor Jackie Peel explains that diversity by drawing a distinction between what she calls first and second generation litigation. So this is a way of understanding how climate litigation is developing over time. And the first generation of cases were the ones that were largely based on projects challenging different kinds of fossil fuel projects, coal mines or coal-fired power stations. They were usually brought on grounds challenging government decision-making on planning and environmental grounds. And they often and only had a sort of incremental change effect. They were sort of project-focused. The next generation cases that we're seeing emerging, particularly in the last five years, are cases that are seeking more systemic change. And they're doing so through arguments based on rights or are seeking accountability of governments or businesses more broadly for climate harm. So we're seeing cases like the recent case before the federal court where children were suing the Australian federal environment minister saying that she, in her decision about a coal mining proposal, needed to take account of the interests of future generations. We're also seeing a set of cases that are being brought against business actors, saying they have a responsibility to make sure that they're releasing appropriate information to shareholders and investors about how they're managing climate risk. So those cases are quite different. They're not sort of localised to a particular project. They're more about how business and policy making is meeting the goals of ensuring sufficient action on climate change. And what can you tell us about the types of people or organisations that are bringing this next generation litigation to the courts? How do they differ from the previous groups? There are some of the same actors involved in both generations, if you like, of litigation. So environmental groups and advocates have been at the forefront of both waves of litigation. But we're beginning to see more people entering the space who come from a a rights background, so a human rights background, or from a corporate and business accountability background. Also seeing new types of litigants emerging, particularly those who might be participating in a class action where they're seeking 
either declarations that somebody is causing them harm or actually potentially in the future financial damages for loss that they're suffering as a result of climate-related events. Shell says it supports the Paris Agreement and plans to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. To meet the most ambitious goals of the Paris Agreement, change needs to happen faster. But activists say change isn't happening fast enough at the oil giants. One court order in particular that stands out as potentially transitional was brought down in late May in a district court in the Netherlands. And it involved the giant gas and oil company Shell on one side and on the other, the group Friends of the Earth and over 17,000 co-plaintiffs. What it was about was Shell's accountability for the emissions that it releases into the atmosphere through the products that it produces and making sure that it was making appropriate reductions in those emissions over time. So it was really trying to hold Shell accountable for its emissions and make sure that it's implementing really clear emissions reduction targets in its corporate policy. And was that significant because it was a company? We've seen international courts or tribunals dealing with governments in the past. Was this the first time that a company has been ordered to comply with these types of emission targets? That's exactly why it was significant. So as you said, we've seen these kinds of actions against governments to hold them accountable for their emissions reduction targets. This was the first case in the world where you're seeing this kind of action being brought against a company and a company being held to account to say, actually, you're a major contributor to emissions. You need to be reducing those emissions and very clearly setting out in your corporate policy how that's going to occur. And is it likely to be influential internationally, this particular case, the outcome of it? Yes, it is going to be influential internationally. It might not be influential in the sense of the same argument being taken in other courts around the world, but it's certainly influential in boardrooms as pointing in the direction of liability for companies if they don't take action to reduce their emissions. We're definitely seeing in the financial press a lot of coverage of the decision, a lot of interest from companies who are oil and gas producers, their CEOs making reference to this decision and it being a potential turning point in thinking about the responsibilities of companies in the oil and gas sector producing fossil fuels to take into account climate considerations. So it's often said in relation to litigation that you probably only need one successful case to change the atmosphere in a boardroom. It puts companies on notice that they could be sued on similar grounds and could be held liable for the damages associated with the climate harms caused by their emissions. So there's a concern about the potential financial liability that might be driving a lot of the attention and the influence of a case like this. Professor Jackie Peel. Which brings us to the International Bar Association and a legal tool they've developed called the Climate Change Model Statute. Here's Canadian environmental law specialist David Estrin, co-chair of the association's Climate Change, Justice and Human Rights Task Force. The basic purposes of the model statute are to lower the procedural hurdles that are too often in the way of citizens successfully getting through the courthouse door so as to then be able to argue a claim that their governments are failing to act on climate change and that climate change affects their rights 
and arguing further that the court has authority and should make an order to government requiring government to take appropriate measures. Professor Estrin describes the statute as a menu of options, but you could also think of it as a manual for best practice. So, I mean, what we're asking judges to do is something that in these kinds of cases that for many of them would seem very unusual, entering uncharted waters. So the other basic purpose of this model statute is it not only provides procedural guidance as to how they could deal with objections like, well, that climate change is really a matter of policy and shouldn't be law, but also provides guidance and precedence from other jurisdictions around the world in analogous situations where courts have favorably dealt with that type of objections in a way that allows the court to actually deal with the merits and not get hung up on unfamiliar arguments that governments may make as to why a court should not get involved. It was called a statute because I guess in many ways it was thought of originally as a series of reforms that could be enacted all at once by a particular level of government. They wanted to facilitate better access to the court and climate justice. But there may be some reluctance on governments to go the distance and do it as a whole statute. So we thought it would be more realistic to propose these things not necessarily, it's not necessarily a complete code, it can be a code, but it could be a a menu of options and lawyers in a particular jurisdiction or judges in a particular jurisdiction could look at these issues and say, well, you know, this reform in Article 3 makes a lot of sense. Why don't we do that in our jurisdiction? And judges could adopt these things as part of the rules of court to some extent. Bar associations could promote it. If they wanted to allow citizens to have a better chance of getting into the courts and being listened to and the courts understanding what they could do and that what they would be doing isn't necessarily radical, that it's to some extent already done in some other jurisdictions, they could look at the model statute and see how the wording could be changed and what these precedents are. And they could choose to recognize, well, maybe in our jurisdiction, we don't have X problem, but we have Y problem. Why don't we bring in a a, a change in our rules that allows us and the citizens to better and the courts to better deal with the Y problem? Some people listening to that would say that that's an instance of judicial activism. Your response to that, I mean, the argument that, you know, it is for government, not the courts, to set policy for a nation. Well, I mean, that's a really relevant question, and that is a typical defense that governments put forward to the court when they're sued in these kinds of cases. And and I can't do better than to quote from the Netherlands Supreme Court in its 2019 decision in the Urgenda case, because the Dutch government made that argument to the court at the lower level, at the appeal level, and finally in the Supreme Court. In effect, they said a political or policy issue, if that's what you want to call it, is not immune from judicial review. So this is the words of the court. The state has asserted that it's not for the courts to undertake the political considerations necessary for a decision on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. In the Dutch system of government, the decision-making on greenhouse gas emissions belongs to the government and parliament. They have a large degree of discretion to make the political considerations that are necessary in this regard. But this is the point that they emphasize. It is up to the courts to decide whether, in taking these decisions, the government and parliament have remained within the limits of the law by which they are bound. This mandate to the courts to offer legal protection, even against the government, is an essential component of a democratic state under the rule of law. The response is often quite defensive to a lot of the successful cases that are litigated 
particularly where they're brought against government defendants, but equally where they're brought against company defendants. So we've often seen quite adverse reaction from politicians to a lot of the climate litigation. An example is around the Adani coal mine, where there was discussion in the parliament of the litigation that was being brought by the Australian Conservation Foundation as being vexatious and frivolous and lawfare, law warfare, effectively. So quite a negative adverse reaction to the litigation, partly because it does reflect badly on the progress that politicians are making or not making in dealing with the challenge of climate change. And is there also some pushback from members of the judiciary around their role, whether they should have a role? Yeah, certainly there is. I mean, less pushback and more some caution about whether this is an appropriate role for the courts. So there's a long-running debate in the legal sphere about what the role of judges should be, whether they should have a strong role in developing the law and taking it forward to address new circumstances and challenges, or whether those functions should be best left with policymakers and parliaments. And you see that debate occurring again in a lot of the climate cases. There's an acknowledgement often that policymakers, particularly at the federal level, haven't been moving fast and effectively on climate change, which might be driving the litigation. But courts are often hesitant to step into the breach and say, well, actually, this is a matter of legal interpretation for the courts. What's been interesting with the next generation of cases is because a lot of them are framed around climate justice, ensuring that for example, future generations or vulnerable communities are appropriately protected from the impacts of climate change. You're seeing judges more willing often to go into that space because they think of it as an issue of justice where the law has a particular role to play. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Taking on any giant multinational conglomerate comes at a cost. And if you're an individual or a group of individuals, knowing where and how to begin is an issue in and of itself. In Australia, one of those providing assistance is a non-profit, non-government legal service called the Environmental Defenders Office. Its CEO is David Morris. The EDO is the largest environmental, public interest environmental law practice in the Australia-Pacific region, and we really try and find legal solutions for people, for communities, to protect nature and our climate. And we empower communities. We provide this powerful tool of law and make it both accessible and understandable to people who otherwise possibly have a fairly limited engagement with our legal system. So it's, it's in some ways it's a redistribution of power And that's why so many of our cases and so many of our particularly smaller community group clients and individual clients are taking the legal fight to very powerful opponents, be it a minister and a representative of the government or be it a large corporation. And are there very many of these kind of cases from communities or from individuals? There's lots. I mean, the the Environmental Defenders Office has run a huge number of these types of community representative pieces of litigation in all variety of forums from 
tribunals through to most recently, or one of our most recent cases in the High Court of Australia, that particular case on behalf of the Oki Action Coal Alliance, that's a collective of local people who live in and around the town of Ackland, which is being affected by a proposed major expansion of the new Ackland coal mine. They're being affected by the, the existing coal mine, but are trying to prevent the additional impacts. And they went to the High Court. A bunch of, you know, local people with limited litigation experience, they're not sophisticated litigants. And in my eyes, these local environmental defenders, they selflessly decide to use litigation as a tool to protect nature to protect their communities and in my eyes they're among the most courageous people we have in our community it's been the privilege of my career to represent them and i presume money would be a a significant barrier if you're an individual or as you say a small community group trying to match a very large corporation or indeed the government you're never going to be able to match the resources as i would say of their opponents and so what they need is an organization like the environmental defenders office who enables them to have legal expertise and the corresponding scientific expertise that we sometimes need to run these cases really at no cost or low cost to their community because they simply couldn't afford to pay the kind of rates that private practice solicitors, private barristers and and experts would charge were they acting for the other side. And one of the I think important roles that our organisation plays is enabling those community groups to bring these cases and win them against these very powerful, more re- better resourced opponents. And, you know, it really goes to the integrity of, of our system, the idea that a small community group can stand up against the might of a major mining company or a government department and then win in court. And it really ensures the integrity of our processes too. It ensures that when ministers are making important decisions, which might have consequences over many decades and in climate change indeed well into the future, that they follow proper process. How much success and influence can community groups have in bringing litigation against big companies and governments? What we've seen is a fairly high degree of success in what you might consider the first wave of climate litigation. So litigation that involves pretty traditional planning considerations. I think the area where there's been less success to date but is a rapidly evolving landscape is in these cases which look to hold particular large emitter private corporations to account to make them pay for the consequences of the emissions that their companies have generated and benefited from in terms of profits. I think that we're starting to see far more success in respect of human rights cases So some of these areas that were novel are now increasingly mainstream. And so what I would predict over the next 10 years is that you will start to see an evolution of the jurisprudence in these spaces. So an evolution of the judges thinking or of the court's findings in respect of some of these cases, which to date have been novel. But as we get better at understanding climate attribution science, so the idea that we can say what influence did climate change have on a particular event or a particular change, and we can then say, and what was the damage of that particular event or change, we're going to see far more success in these cases. And what you'll see is a growing body of knowledge, a growing body of reasoning that starts to place very real pressure, I think, on companies and governments who fail to act more swiftly than they are already. And how important is the argument of connection with country, with place for local litigation? 
people's sense of place. This is the idea that landscapes are, are socially constructed as well. They are imbued with meaning through people's engagement with their local environment. And with coal and gas projects, we see local communities devastated by the prospect of physical destruction of a loved environment. The idea that their positive bond with a place will be completely decimated by a project, I think becomes a very real motivator for people. Local community groups are often motivated by a deep love of a place and a desire to not see that place destroyed. Certainly we see it increasingly so, I think, in, in the work we do with traditional owners, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. And the deep connections that those people have to country and the impacts that they see from particular projects, but also that they see from the growing impacts of climate change. There's even a specific legal tradition focusing on this connection to land. It's the oldest we have, Chthonic law. Jacqueline McGlade in Kenya believes it will be increasingly important in the future. The most fundamental premise which is relevant for climate change is that there is no separation in Chthonic law between humans and nature. There is a continuum. And therefore, what you do, quote, to nature, you're actually doing to people. So in a tribal and in an Aboriginal thinking, it's weird to talk about environmental law. As far as Chthonic law is concerned, it's, it's like all the colours of the universe. It's green, it's blue, it's everything. And so you really have to see that this is almost the most sophisticated legal tradition we could have, because when you damage the environment, you damage the rights of everyone, including the wildlife that are there, the animals and the plants and the people. So it is a profound way in which we can take the complexity of lives that people have all over planet Earth and reset the clock to say, when you have this embeddedness, you actually get a far greater opportunity to deliver the rights of people, of living organisms, of biodiversity. And therefore, you wouldn't want climate change to happen because effectively, you are undermining the rights of everyone, including the planet and all of its living organisms. So there are ways that it works. In a funny way, here in Africa, where I'm sitting at the moment, the two traditions sit side by side. Of course, there's always the law courts. But here you'll see that the elders, the council of elders, resolve many of these kinds of issues long before they've had to become a legal case. And so this moral obligation that we often have under the law is deeply embedded, but it takes along with it, as I say, all of nature. So you don't have to invent laws about the way you treat animals, because that is entirely odd, because it's all integral to the way in which we essentially run the planet. So that's why it's not separate. It's not like an earth jurisprudence or a green law or environmental law. It's a fundamental law in which all of us can live on the planet. And it avoids, for example, alienation by allowing property to become separate. And very importantly, the Canadian government has recognised Chthonic law in the case of communities, Indigenous peoples. The Supreme Court even used this terminology to talk about common law provinces over land. In other words, they recognised Chthonic community law to describe how land can be described and used. And similarly, we have it in Switzerland. There's something called communal pasture. So it doesn't have to be necessarily broken up. It can be kept together, but it could be. But you look after land, so to speak, on behalf of the community at large. So it's the collective enjoyment. The planet is for collective enjoyment. And that's what the Chthonic legal tradition really brings us. 
So I think it's possibly a very good and and interesting way for us to talk about climate. And now that it's being recognized in the courts, it could easily be a mechanism and a way in which we can discuss and describe each individual, our role in society and how we can bring societies and the planet together. Yes, I do think that we are going to see a continuing ramping up of climate litigation over time, mostly because the injustices and inequalities associated with climate impacts are really only going to increase across time. There does tend to often be a pattern where you see more climate litigation, where there's an anxiety or perception that governments and businesses are not doing enough. If governments and businesses suddenly came on board and were at the forefront of driving ambitious climate action, then I think you'd see less climate litigation action. But at the moment, there's not a perception that governments and businesses are doing enough. So I think you can expect to see the courts being extensively used to try and accelerate and force greater action. On today's edition of Future Tense, we heard from Professors Jackie Peel and Jacqueline McGlade, along with lawyers David Morris and David Estrin. The producer was Karen Savanovitz. Go to our website if you want further details. I'm Anthony Fennell. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.